Father, you have been gracious and kind to us in providing us your word, a directional book, writings that we can live our lives by. We ask that we would take the counsel from it, that we would gain the understanding, that we would apply it to our lives. And as we learn about the Hebrew believers and what they were encouraged to do and to believe, may we also mimic what they were taught. We pray, Lord, that we would do this not only for our own benefit, but for yours and your kingdom. And as we reach out, we pray that you would bless the motivation that we have, that we would do it for your sake and for your kingdom, and nothing in and of ourselves. So, Father, bless your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we left off with the fact that Jesus had become that great high priest, the one that is superior to the Old Testament priesthood, and he gave us four directives through the author of the book of Hebrews, and they were, let us draw near to God, in other words, spend time with him. Secondly, we are to hold unswervingly to the hope, the hope is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Thirdly, we are to give thought to encouraging others to love and good works. We're always to be reaching out to others and say, hey, would you like to help? Hey, would you like to do this? What does the Lord ask you to do? Can I be a part of it? That type of thing. And fourthly, we're not to forsake the gathering together of the brothers, as is the habit of some, and all the more as you see it, the day approaching. So you're to be involved in fellowship, Bible study, going to church, and our tendency is to draw away from God, to maintain doubt. Is this really real? Is this true? We need to avoid being slack in good deeds and encourage others to do them. And we need to avoid this giving up going to church. Now, in verse 26, it gives this statement, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Now, if you just read that right off the cuff, again, simply, if we deliberately keep on sinning, the last time you sinned, did you want to? The last time you sinned, did you know it was wrong and then do it anyhow? Isn't that deliberately? So, you know, if I took a poll, at least in the last month, maybe it wasn't yesterday or the day before, in our spirits, we don't want to. But in our flesh, we want to. All of it. Oh, yeah, we want to. Remember I told you the story where I backed into a car in a parking lot? And what was the first thought in my head? Leave. Just leave. Don't leave any information. Just get out of there. And that was, and I wanted to. I wanted to just leave. And I had to fight that. I had to say no. And I had to tell myself no. And so when I read this, I go, wow, if I deliberately keep on sinning after I have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. It makes it sound like if I go out there and sin and I want to and I do it and I premeditated it, then there's no sacrifice left for me. Well, that's not exactly true. You have to keep it in context. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the Hebrew believers, the Hebrew scholars that want to return to the old sacrificial system, right? And so this idea of sinning will, willingly, it's the willful sin as opposed to sins committed inconsiderately. 
or from ignorance or from weakness. Now, we've all committed sins inconsiderately. We're not thinking of others better than ourselves. We do things and we just bowl over other people and we actually sin against them. We bring an offense. We offend them in some way of something that we do. And sometimes it's unavoidable and it's going to happen simply because we're focused on ourselves. Secondly, because we're ignorant. Well, I didn't know that that was a sin. Uh, When you first became a believer, there were several sins I'm sure you didn't know or even recognize existed. And then all of a sudden you find you are guilty and you committed a sin in ignorance. Or what about from weakness? You don't want to sin, but your body takes you over, so to speak, like the alcoholic. The alcoholic, most alcoholics don't want to be alcoholics, but then they just give in to the flesh and they go, oh, well, you know, what am I supposed to do? And so there are those sins. And then there's the other one that says, I'm going to do this. God's going to forgive me. It's all good. That's the person that there is no sacrifice left for sin. And that is repeated in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 and Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. So we are to make sure that we don't fall under that classification of somebody who willfully, premeditatively, with the idea that God is going to forgive me, commit a sin. It's one thing to do that with forethought. It's another to do it in ignorance and weakness or being inconsiderate of others. Verse 27 says, But only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. That is the individual who goes out and sins and says, It's okay that I do this. First Corinthians, again, 6, 9 says, Do not be deceived. Those that live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he, he makes a point that there are people that don't understand, don't know that God is not a forgiving God like that, somebody who just wants to do whatever they want to do. And is not repentant. There is no evidence of repentance in the individual's life. Verse 28 says, Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so he's just making a point here that in the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, in order to be convicted of a crime, especially a capital crime, there had to be two or three reliable witnesses. Not like in Ferguson where you had a couple, few witnesses come forward, and the district attorney said they just outright lied. They were not reliable. They changed their story in mid-course, if you were following that news story a while back. And if that's the case, then the jury ruled correctly, the grand jury. Now, verse 29 goes on to say, How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him? And who has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So this is the threat that is delivered through this passage. Do not return to the Old Testament sacrificial system. It will not do you any good. Do not think that by your works you will gain anything from God. He's not going to turn to you and say, I have to bless you now for what you did. That's not the way it works. And they wanted to return to that system. And the author here is saying, don't do it. Only a dreadful God, or it'll be a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Verse 32, 
Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Now, if you go back to when you first got saved, I, I love baby Christians that the Lord has gotten a hold of. They're like torches. And sometimes they're like blast furnaces. And you have to temper them a little bit. They are so on fire for the Lord that they run out there and they start setting fires everywhere. And they look at you like, what? What did I do? I, I don't know. What are you talking about? And they're so zealous. They just want to go out there and they're bowling people over in the process. And that's where the more mature Christian needs to come along and grab a hold of them, pour a little water of the Holy Spirit on them, douse that flame that comes from the flesh a little bit and say, okay, now just relax a little bit. You ever see little children that get all hyped up and they're running around everywhere? Uh, this afternoon I'm going to Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> I'm going right into the lion's den with all these kids just running everywhere. Well, that would be like a baby Christian too. One who wants to go out and witness is really not sure how to do it and ends up offending people and people are laying by the wayside wherever they go. It's like learning how to do this, asking God for wisdom. And it says in Hebrews here that the people that got saved when they came out of Judaism and got saved and became quote-unquote a Christian, and we find that they were called Christians first at Antioch in the book of Acts, but these young Baby Christians were so on fire, they would lose everything under persecution. Imagine somebody coming to your house. Imagine that. Somebody coming to your house and commandeering your house and saying, you are no longer allowed to own this house because of what you believe. Let's go to the present day. France. How many Jews are left in France? Have you seen the headlines? The headlines, there's this one man who writes a paper. And he is one of the biggest in the European sector for writing about the Jews. And he said, I don't know of any Jews that still remain or aren't making serious plans to get out of France. The Jews are just leaving because there is this anti-Semitic move. It is because the Muslim ISIS organization and Al-Qaeda, they are moving in there. I, I think I talked about... Oh, I did in the home fellowship, the no-go zones. Have you guys heard about that? The no-go zones? They have ceded authority and power in certain communities to Sharia law and Islam, the Muslims. And the police will not even go in there because it would be too dangerous for them. Imagine if a Jew went in there. They would probably be killed. They'd probably have their head cut off because they are a Jew in the middle of France. Now, those Jews have been persecuted for centuries. And where are they going? They're going to the United States. They're going to Israel. They're being moved around. And when you see that taking place, even though it's really not largely in the mainstream media that this is happening, when you see a large exodus of the Jews because of persecution, you know it's ramping up when that stuff starts taking place. And so we need to be vigilant about praying for those Jews who are leaving. Could you imagine leaving your house and having to move away simply because you were a Christian. 
I will tell you this, that if Al-Qaeda and ISIS have their way, that would happen to you. They would come to San Diego. They would have sectors in San Diego, the radical faction of Islam. I'm not talking about, you know, there is a a peaceful, more libertarian view of the um, Islamic religion, the Muslim religion. But there is this sect of it that is highly dangerous. And as one person said in politics, we are in a religious war. And there are people who do not want to admit to that. They don't want to call it a terrorist act. They don't want to say that persecution is going on. And so for those who are being persecuted, we need to help if we are able to. If we are called to help, we need to help. If somebody is a Christian and they're being persecuted, if there's any way that we can help, uh, Pastor Saeed, who's still in Iran, what, his third year in Iran, we need to be praying for him. If you get caught anywhere in that 1040 window and they don't like you for whatever reason and you're a Christian, there's persecution ready to come. And that's what these people, the young Christians, were enduring. That's talked about here in the book of Hebrews. And he's reminding them of that zealousness. You know, to be zealous without knowledge is not good. Uh, you create a problem. Imagine in the military, you got a new recruit in, and they got a, a brand new weapon, and they just wanted to go use it, but they didn't know how to use it. And they went out there, and they just started shooting up things. They would cause a lot of damage. It's the same thing with God's Word. How powerful is God's Word? Oh, just You can't imagine. By simply speaking, everything came into existence. Now, I'll get into that in uh, chapter 11 a little bit. But that's how powerful it is. You get a new Christian and God says, okay, I'm going to put my word in you. Imagine this. For those of you who have seen Tony Stark in Iron Man 3 where he makes the new energy pack or whatever and he brings this laser around and it focuses right on that energy pack and the thing's going like this. He, He just carries it out and he puts it in his chest and he goes, oh, okay, it's all good, right? Imagine it's not just buzzing. It's more than a nuclear power plant. You're putting that inside of a new Christian. And could they misuse that? Absolutely they could misuse that. That's why we're supposed to be involved in fellowship and in discipline and all those things so that we can use the word of God correctly. We're to reflect back to our basic union with Christ where we got saved and maintain that zealousness but then rise to meet that zealousness with knowledge. What often happens? The zealousness goes all the way down and the knowledge goes like this. It never really meets up. You need to crank up the zealousness and crank up the knowledge and if those two meet, you as a believer will be unstoppable. But what does it take to do that? It takes discipline. It takes fighting. The spiritual warfare that is out there, it takes the opposition, resisting the opposition. So we're not to leave our first love. At the point you were first saved, just make sure you maintain that. And by the way, when somebody gets saved like that and there's an emotional response, they have... In the brain chemistry, the biochemistry, they have the endorphins release, and there's this feeling of euphoria, and these receptors in the brain, they become active where they will recede, uh, receive, they will receive, they're called opiate receptors is what they are. And so when somebody gets saved like that for the first time, they are just feeling great. And people go after that feeling 
sometimes. They just want that experience again. It's like a drug. That's why addictions happen. It's just like a drug. And so uh, to close this part of it out, the young believer can be like on this drug, on this high, but they need to remember how when they are first saved, the older believers need to remember how they were just first saved, but again, add to that knowledge, and God will bless whatever comes ahead. Now, and this is primarily for the call to endurance, that you will simply persevere, that you won't give up, you will not let yourself be discouraged by the circumstances around you, and you will not focus on the temporal, but on the eternal. And that's what verse 36 says. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Um, a couple of illustrations, one from sports, weightlifting. I watched this guy um, press. He put it on his shoulders. And I, the, what are the big ones? 45 pounds? You guys who go to the gym? Anybody go to the gym? 45 pounds, the big ones. There was either five or six on either side. And this guy, he, he got underneath and he put it on his shoulders. Then he dropped his hands. And he just did this squat. And he, and I'm going, I would never do that. But this guy, he just, you could see him focus. He just put his eyeballs forward. His hands went out like this and he went straight down. And he did not lose his focus. He went straight down and back up. Now, as soon as he got back up, his hands moved so fast to grab that bar that it would not move because it would have been a disaster had that come off. But his focus was just like right to the point, just like a laser, you know, right on one point. What do they tell you if you're going to give birth to a child? Not the husband. What do they tell the wife? It's called a focal point, right? You pick something in the room, you get your focal point, and you look at that no matter what is going around or on around you. The nurses are running around, and they're saying things, and the husband's going, it's going to be okay, you know, effleurage, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And they're just, they're just making you feel good. Yeah, isn't that what it is? Effleurage? Isn't that what they call it? I'm not a midwife or a doula or anything like that. I, I just remember that that's what we had before. And, and, and so this focus, this idea of focusing on a point, that's what we're supposed to do as believers. What's our focus? The blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's what you keep in mind. And what do we get distracted by? Those people in church. <laughs> right? Or the sinners who cause persecution or the tyranny of the urgent. I like to use that phrase when I can't get to something and something is so demanding and pulls on my time. I chalk it up to the tyranny of the urgent. You will now do this. There are going to be a lot of parents today at Chuck E. Cheese who will be under the tyranny of the urgent because their kids are going to be going away and no matter what they think they're going to do talking to other parents, they're going to be focused on their kids. They are focused And that's what we're supposed to be, is focused. Do not lose sight. Keep on going straight. You ever see a runner in a race? I mean, they kind of focus when they they see that tape, that line that's up ahead at a track meet, and they are booking. I love the uh, slow motion 
as they're moving and their face is going up and down and they're running and they're just, their eyes are focused on that line. Do not get distracted. You're having trouble financially. You're having trouble in your marriage. You're having trouble with your kids. You're having trouble at your work. All of those things are in there. Stay focused. Yeah, you have to deal with those, but stay focused. Don't let yourself get carried away and say, these circumstances are just going to ruin me. I don't have time for church. Do not forsake the gathering together of the brethren, as is the habit of some. Do not fail to grow in knowledge. Study to show yourself approved. You know, so that is the focus that the author of Hebrews is giving to those who are Hebrews, probably teachers. This is how you're to remain in your walk with the Lord. You just stay focused going ahead. Now, Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. There's a couple of different versions of this. Faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's how I memorize it in the King James. Also, the New American Standard. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And the New King James says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Just like the King James Version. So what is this idea of faith? First, it says in just a couple of verses that in order to please God, you have to have faith. You have to believe. But what is faith? Is it blind faith? Do you just trust that things are because you want them to be? Have you ever talked to somebody like that? Well, because I just believe they are. Well, what gives you the evidence that makes you believe that? Well, nothing. I just want to believe that. I mean, is that kind of dangerous? Not only for this life, but for the next life. You have to have some type of substance to be holding on to. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. How can you be sure? How can you be sure that there's even a heaven or that there's a hell? The atheist would tell you, you have no way of knowing if there's heaven or hell. No, I think we do have a way of knowing. We'll especially know when we get there whichever place we go to, right? But how, how can you latch on to something like that? My theology teacher, Donald Thorson, that I had in uh, college, he was, he was so good. He was so good about explaining these things. And when it came to the issue of faith, he would say, we have a reasonable faith. We don't have faith that we believe in fairies and goblins and trolls and things like that. And if you believe those exist, we can talk later. They're probably just demons, but they don't exist like you think they might exist. But there are things that do in that spiritual, that ethereal realm. And God tells us a little bit about it. And Biddy says, stay away from that. And we're not sure if it exists or not. You know, it's kind of there, kind of not in our understanding. But when it comes to heaven, how sure can you be that heaven is real? That Jesus died on the cross? That you have a tremendous assurance that there is, quote-unquote, evidence? Well, if you go on in these passages here, it says... And this is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. Where's the first place he go or he goes here to establish faith? Genesis. He goes to Genesis. If you have a problem with Genesis, you're going to have a problem with the rest of the Bible. And if you've ever had geology, if you've ever had astronomy, if you've ever gone to some of these sciences that deal with the earth 
and how it works, if you've dabbled in astrophysics and what takes place with that. For instance, I found out an interesting fact. You know, the Earth goes around the sun on what is known as the plane of the ecliptic. The plane of the ecliptic, if you have the star map on your Android or um, iPhone, you can tap into that, and I have that app, and you can hold it up in the sky, and you can see what planets and stars are what. And there is this line on the app, and the line, it pretty much, from where we are right here, it, it probably goes right now this way. It's called the plane of the ecliptic. And on that plane are all the planets. On that line are all the planets. And our moon is on that uh, line as well. But our earth, as it is also on that plane of the ecliptic, and just imagine a flat piece of paper that's round that goes all the way out from the equator of the sun. goes out in all directions, and all the planets are on that plane. That's why it's called the plane of the ecliptic. But our earth is tilted as it goes around. So imagine this is the earth upright. And if you tilt the earth, now it goes around the sun on that tilt, right? Now the moon, do you think it follows our equator? Because it is not in the plane of the ecliptic. You know, you're following me here? Does it follow the plane of the equator? Or does it follow the plane of the ecliptic? I found out which one that was. It was kind of interesting to me. The forces in our solar system tell the moon, you will not follow the plane of the earth. You will follow the plane of the ecliptic. Even though the gravity of our earth is strongest towards the equator, it will follow that because of the magnetic fields and all of that. It will follow the plane of the ecliptic. And you start looking at that and go, wow, there's, there's some design to this. And the ancients were commended for their faith because God spoke everything into being. Now, how did he do that? And there is a debate out there about how the universe was created, right? Uh, first, it was string theory. Then it was, you have these, um, they don't call them planes. Somebody will be able to tell me what they're like, sheets of paper. And they come in and, and a couple of these scientists said, well, these sheets of paper are different universes. And these different, what are they called? There's a name for it, though. The, the sheets is what they call them. And they, they said these sheets would wave like this. And there's an infinite number of them. And whenever they go like that, then a whole other universe is created. And that's how we got here. I, 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 I don't get that one. That was one way that it happened. And then they said, well, there was this big ball of stuff. And the big ball of stuff exploded. Now, it's no longer a big ball of stuff. It's an infinitesimally small bit I mean, smaller than you can hold between your fingers. That became the universe. They go, what? Yeah. Well, not only is it not a little bit, it's nothing. God sat there and said, let there be light. And as soon as he said, do you know how fast the universe was created? It, it, was, it was like, as soon as God said it, and from what we know now in our observable universe, the scientists will confirm this, that it went from nothing to, what, 45 billion light years across our universe from end to end, something like that. And that's only, the only reason it's 45, 45.6 or whatever, that's as far as they can see. They can't see any farther than that. And 
they think, many of the scientists think, it's infinite. It just keeps going. What do you mean it's infinite? Yeah, forever. What, what do you mean forever? There's got to be an outside band. No, it seems like it goes forever. And how many stars and planets? They're innumerable. You can't count them. There are so many, you can't count them. And it went from nothing, and instantly it went out to several billion light years. Instantly. That, yes, is faster than the speed of light. Einstein said that nothing can go faster than the speed of light. I'm sorry, the universe expanded at greater than the speed of light. Now, how is that possible? I have no idea how that is possible. I have no idea whatsoever, and I don't think we'll ever be able to figure it out. You know, one of the goals of uh, science is in order to prove something is true, you have to replicate it. Good luck. There is no way you're going to replicate something like that. And then the order that comes out of that. Now, if you just, you know, we are living on this earth and we just look at our creation, right? And how this system works. Wherever you look in the earth, under the earth, above the earth, there is life. It is everywhere. It is not just some places it is everywhere. I saw a microscopic picture of a dot of chalk. Do you know what chalk is? Diatoms. What are diatoms? They're these microscopic little animals that had little skeletons that they formed in mass, and you had gypsum. And when you look at gypsum, and that's what you put in some pool filters, if you look at that under a microscope, it's a bunch of dead animals, dead beings is what it is. And there is life on the microscopic level all the way. You can get the biggest animals on the face of the earth. What is it, a blue whale that is the biggest or megalodon that used to exist? I think that was the name of that big creature. You look at these things and you just go, wow. But then falsely so, the evolutionist would say, well, look how similar they are. They're just changes in features, and they went from one to the other, right? No, they didn't go from one to the other. There has never been a change in kind. A change in kind is where you go from a lizard to a cat, something like that. Now, you do get different lizards. How many dogs were on the ark? A chihuahua, shepherd, golden retriever. No, they all came from one pair of dogs one or uh, unclean what was it uh seven was it seven for the unclean i'm i lost that brain cell whatever <laughs> whatever it is it's either two or it's seven from those dogs came all dogs and you might say from a saint bernard you got a chihuahua N- no you didn't but god says that there is a variety but if you could put the chihuahua together with the saint bernard you would have a banawa that you would end up getting, you know, but you can't get a cat and a St. Bernard. And God designed it all that way. And you look at that and you go, wow, look at the variety and how these things come about. And you look at the cycle of the earth where the water constantly runs on the land, right, from rain. What happens to the water? It flows to the ocean. How come the ocean doesn't fill up? It's a hydraulic cycle. It just keeps on going through, right? Who set that up? Isn't that a method? Isn't that a mode? Yes, it is. Who put the moon out there? You know, they have theories about the moon and how the moon was created. God just couldn't have done it and just stuck it there? Well, no. 
there happens to be this planet and goes by a couple of different names that intersected and crashed into the earth and then it created this debris field and that debris field coalesced and became the moon out there. Whatever, you know. (laughs) We come up with all these theories. You just look at it and how it works and, and just the motion of our solar system and the galaxies and all of that. And I just marvel. One of the greatest classes in college I ever had was botany. And I got into botany, and this guy, his name was Mr. Riddle. He was a a Vietnam vet, and he came back from Vietnam, and he was just full of life. And he would get so excited about the microscopic, I mean, almost apoplectic. He would talk about something that was just so small, some of the mosses and the slime molds and the the bacteria and stuff like that. And he goes, these are fascinating. And he would put a picture of it up there and go, look at that. And he would make you look at it underneath the microscope. And he said, do you see that? And when we'd find something in the field that was talking about what he had just talked about in class, he would, oh, I got to take this. And he would put it in a terrarium and he'd have it grow. He was just really excited about it. But to look at the microscopic scale of how God has things work that we never look at. If you go outside and you see some moss on the ground, if you were to look at that, if you were to able to get down right into it and look at it, you would say, this is paradise. This is so beautiful. And you look at that as well as the magnanimous out there, the universe. God put all of this in motion and all you have to do is look at it and say, who painted that? Instead of saying, I wonder how that came about by chance. You know, that's one of the fallacies that is out there. This idea of chance or random acts. Let me get my reference here. First, God created everything out of nothing. There's a theological term for that called ex nihilo. And it just means simply that God spoke it into existence and there was nothing that said, I wanted to become something. Now, with that, you have to go to the realm of philosophy a little bit. If God didn't exist and there was something... Every effect has a cause. Every philosopher will tell you that. Every scientist will tell you that. If there was something in the universe, whether a tiny speck or a big ball of matter, who put that matter there? It doesn't just arrive by itself. Matter of fact, if down this road of philosophy, and this is what the Hebrew scholars would have done. They would have sat down and contemplated this stuff. Where did that mass, that ball, come from? And could there ever have been a time where there was nothing and then there was something? The answer is no. There had to be, for all time, something that exists. There could never be a time where there was nothing. And God did this. This is what the Hebrew scholars would have debated. Now they say, well, how did that get there? Well, God put it there is what he did. So he created things ex nihilo is what he did. Now also the creationist and the, or excuse me, the evolutionist would say, well, there's this chance. The universe was created by chance. Now I knew somebody once named as chance, right? I don't know why a parent would name the child chance. <laughs> who thought? Oh, we had a chance, you know, that's who they ended up having. But There is no power, no substance in the word chance. The word chance means it just, the roll of the dice, it just happened. There is nothing behind that when they say that it happened by chance or by accident. What do you mean by accident it just happened? The earth came into being by accident? When you have an accident with a car, does it get better or does it get worse? 
So what would happen to the universe? If there was an accident, what would happen? It would get worse if something existed. But remember, nothing existed. God spoke it into existence. What about randomness? That's a word they use to describe how the universe got here too. Randomness. It just, well, it just happened. That is blind faith. You're not looking at the evidence. Randomness. That's like if you took a um, jar of BBs or ball bearings and you threw them onto the concrete floor right here, that they would stand up like a tower. What's the chance of that? There is a chance, but it won't happen. It won't take place. And that's what they use to explain, because there's not enough time for it to happen, that's what they use to explain the creation of the universe. And so this is what the people from old, the time of old, the elders would look at, they would discover, and we should do that too. This will build your faith. If you've never been to the Creation uh, Research Institute over there, uh, their little museum, you need to go there. If you've never been somewhere to look at the uh, geological formations, if you've never been to the Grand Canyon, you need to go. You need to look at all of those layers. There's that one place in China that has all those layers and they're all different colors. It's like the colors of the rainbow and God created all of that. He put it together and we need to contemplate these things. When you go outside in the rain, you go, how do you go from a gas to a liquid and right onto my head? How is that possible? God designed all of it. So we need to think about those things and that will build your faith that it just didn't happen by chance or by randomness or by accident. Verse 4 says, Now by faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings and by faith he still speaks even though he is dead. Now we're going to be getting into over this uh, next chapter all these different people from the Old Testament. And it spends a lot of time in Genesis. You have Enoch, you have Cain, you have Abel, you have Abraham. You have all these individuals from Genesis. And so that's where the faith begins. I believe Genesis is foundational for our faith. You need to understand that. You need to believe it. You need to see the evidence that exists for everything that God has done. That will give you the evidence for a solid faith. That will give you the substance there. If you take Genesis and you just say, I'm not going to believe that, you shove it to the side. It's just an epic. It's a fairy tale. You're not going to be very strong in your faith. Why do you think it's good for the young kids to focus on the stories like Noah and the big boat? Those things? It's because that's the foundation of the faith. That's where we start from. We start with Abraham. We start with Isaac. We start with Jacob. We start with Joseph. You need to know those stories. If you do that, you will be moving on from infancy. Your zealousness when you got saved will be matched by your understanding. And I'll mention this again next week. But Proverbs says, though it costs you everything, get understanding. You want to have a strong faith? You want to be like Abel and Abraham and Noah and Jephthah and all these people from Hebrews chapter 11? And also, who was the name or what was the name of the prostitute down in Jericho that saved the two spies or uh, put the spies underneath the hay? Rahab. If you want to be like Rahab, believing, not because of her profession, but this idea of believing, if you want to have a strong faith like that, then look at these people in the Old Testament. Be about the Lord's business. Get into the Word. And if you do, He will build you up and He will prepare you for a time that you didn't think was even possible. God can use you in such a way to affect the people around you and make sure that they are into the kingdom or they get into the kingdom. On a final note, I'm going to ask a question. I gave you a challenge last week. 
What was the challenge? Witness to somebody. Right. Did anybody in here witness to somebody this last week? I know you did, Kimberly. Yeah, you did too? What happened? Now, that one person will probably end up getting saved. Now, my daughter, Kimberly, she is here. She was doing some work at her place, and I told her I was going to come over there. She's doing some remodeling. So I'm at Home Depot. I said it will be about 30 minutes for me to get there. I talked about this at Home Fellowship. And I said, uh, you know, I'll be there in such and such a time. She goes, hurry up. I'm talking to a Mormon. (laughs) And the Mormon was in her house, and she tells the Mormon, she goes, do you know there's not marriage in heaven? He goes, what? There is two. She goes, no. Matthew chapter 22. She busted up your phone, right? You, you said, here, read this in the phone. Gives him the phone and he reads it. And what was his reaction? He didn't know what to say. He just stared. He had it on his phone. On his phone. Bible. He looked it up on his phone so that he could read it himself. But he just stared at it. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to ask about this. Okay, so he started having questions. But then you told him I'm a pastor, right? Yes. Okay, so I show up and I start to work there. I introduce myself. His name is Aki? Aki. 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 His name is Aki. He's going to be in awe pretty soon when he accepts the Lord. But this idea, he, he sat down. We sat down and we had pizza. You know, we're both working. He's working upstairs. I'm working downstairs. We sit down and we have pizza. And so uh, Kimberly invited him to church. He's not here, is he? Okay, invited him to church. <laughs> and, and he goes, well, you know, I might. He lives down in Benita. And, and so she goes, well, I know somebody who might be able to help you with all that. And he goes, well, who's that? Like, this guy? You know, and I'm sitting across the room. And uh, I talked to him a little bit, and I just said, I'm going to give it to you straight. There's no marriage in heaven. It says that in Matthew chapter 22, I think it's Mark chapter 12, and also Luke, it's either chapter 20 or 21. It says there's no marriage in heaven. I said according to your own doctrine, Abraham, book of Abraham, chapter 1, it says anybody who comes from the lineage of the Egyptians is disqualified from the priesthood. And I said, have you got your patriarchal blessing yet? And he goes, yeah. And I said, what tribe are you from? Are you from Manasseh or from Ephraim? He goes, oh, Manasseh. I'm from Manasseh. I said, well, you know, Manasseh, who was he the son of? He goes, Joseph. I said, who is Joseph married to? He goes, I don't know. I said, he was married to the daughter of the priest of On who was in Egypt. Therefore, he's Egyptian. Therefore, Manasseh and Ephraim are disqualified from the priesthood. And if you're from their lineage, you are disqualified by the own doctrine in the Mormon church from the priesthood. I go, what do you think about that, basically? He goes, "I, I haven't heard that before. And so we gave him this information, and he texts back later that, uh, yeah, he'd like to sit down and talk sometime. And so I'm going to try to make that happen, talk to him. Maybe one day he'll be here. If you ever meet a guy named Aki, Aki, if you ever meet Aki, just go, you're the one. No. 
Don't do anything like that. But I'm telling you, it just does so much for your faith if you get out there and you find a heathen. You find somebody who is not saved and you give them the gospel. And especially if they get saved, it does wonders for your walk. It gives you tremendous building of your faith. And don't worry about it. Sometimes you're going to be rejected and dejected. Hey, that just goes with the territory. But please, just look for the inroad. If somebody talks about church, I mean, that's an inroad right there. If they talk about God, that's an inroad right there. If they talk about death, that's an inroad right there. If they talk about life, that's an inroad right there. If they talk about anything, it's an inroad. God can use it and your faith will be built. This is what the hall of faith is all about. You should become familiar with these people. Try to read up on them in the Old Testament as we go through it this next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us the examples of these people from the Old Testament who believed in spite of the opposition, who believed in spite of some of the evidences that they were shown. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to have the same faith And even though that they were rejected by their peers and by their family and by their friends and by society, they still endured. They persevered. So help us with this, Lord. Help us to be just like those people in the hall of faith. And with your help, the help of your spirit, we will do so. In Jesus' name, and everyone send. Amen.